So welcome back to Adventures in Blockchain. This is the podcast that's all about blockchain technology. So I'm Gregory from DAP University, and I've got my co-panelists Bruno and Roman here today to talk about how blockchains work. So hey guys, excited to do another episode. Hi Gregory. Hello Hello, everyone. (laughs) Yeah, awesome. Well, cool, guys. Well, today, yeah, we're going to cover this topic of, you know, how does a blockchain work? And this is a really common question that newcomers into the space have just because it's such a paradigm shift. It's a new piece of technology that um, seems to just, you know, work differently from other things that you might have encountered in the past. So, Roman, you want to kick us off and kind of talk about, you know, why we need blockchains in the first place? I mean, one of the biggest use cases that we have for blockchain right now is payments and solving some of the problems with payments. So you want to tell us a little bit about, you know, what that looks like, you know, why, what, what advantage a blockchain gives us in the payment world? Sure. Uh, so let's, before we talk about how does a blockchain work, I think we should ask ourselves, how does our current technology work for processing our payments? For example, how does a PayPal, Stripe, or Venmo work at all? So we share, yeah, that'd be great. The first step, we open up an account. Where does the account live? It lives in some sort of central database that PayPal or Venmo holds. And uh, they basically store all the information of my account or my current balance and of a list of all my transactions that I've made to. And um, basically, when I open a Venmo account, they tell me, okay, can you fund your balance with some other banking solution or some other payment processor? What they essentially do, they uh, record that balance into their database so that I can spend my balance um, in the future. So what we just explained, like how does the central system works comparing to blockchain? And blockchain has a sort of similar processes, like uh, similar objects, I would say, like account object, transaction object, your balance. And the central solutions, basically, they are responsible for making sure that you cannot do a double spend transaction. That's why it's efficient because you have, we have to like trust them that they will make sure you can just print money. Right. With blockchains, what's very fascinating about blockchains is it's it solved the problem of double spend without. So, what what does that mean? What what do you mean by double spend? Double spend means like if I have ten dollars on my account, I can spend this ten dollars twice. Uh, so I can like send ten dollars to Gregory and ten dollars to Bruno. That's basically a double spend problem. Right. I should only be able to spend ten dollars once. And essentially, that's a that's a problem with inside of a database because if if the database just tracks that you have ten dollars, that could potentially be manipulated, right? Right. With the central authorities, uh, they can go to the database because only they have the accounts. And we as a customers of PayPal or Venmo, we don't have this access. We don't know what's going on behind the scenes exactly. And we can just look at our data and only, and they sort of allow this for privacy reasons as well. Like you, I can just look someone else's account and see what kind of transaction he made. I think it may be possible with Venmo, but I'm not sure about PayPal. Mm-hmm. So what you're saying is that the the main thing about transactions and payments is that today it revolves a lot around trust. You know, we have to trust our banks or our operators that, you know, the money that I have is actually going to be sent to who I have to pay or that I actually have the money to begin with. And, you know, how does the, the blockchain solve that? Uh, you know, how does the blockchain approach that? So I think the really good question uh, would be, can they change the data? Yes, they can, like in terms of central uh, payment uh, solutions. With the blockchain, nobody can. That's the most like powerful answer why, why blockchain is there. So what I mean by that, when you create a transaction on the blockchain and this transaction is valid, and it's been accepted by the miners and included into like this sort of decentralized database, that means 
nobody can ever reverse these transactions, period. It's completely immutable and it's already validated this transaction that it's it's not a double spend transaction. And th there are mathematical and cryptographical algorithms that are being used to make sure the blockchain, this like particular blockchain can be trusted. Mm -hmm. There are some sort of other blockchains that some people say that it's centralized or there is a, like an easier barrier to manipulate the transactions, to manipulate the balances. Theoretically, yes, it's possible for to execute a double spend attack. It's also called like 50, um, yeah, double spend attack would, could be a little bit different than 51% attack, but essentially with a 50, I'm sorry, I'm getting into many technical details. So 51% so attack could be used as a double spend attack. What 51% attack means is that if you have more than 51% of the uh, computation power in a, in a proof of work algorithm, you can execute a double spend. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Yeah, totally. Yeah, that's, that's pretty crazy. So yeah, thanks for that explanation, Roman. I mean, that, you know, that really shows us a huge benefit of the blockchain over these traditional payment processors and, and financial transactions and payments. Um, so maybe let's talk about this as a use case to understand how the blockchain works as a solution, as a technical solution and, and the mechanism behind it. Um, so whenever I talk to people who are new to blockchain, you know, I, I try to help them think about it in terms of things that they're already kind of used to, at least developers or other people who have some technical knowledge, which is I kind of think about the blockchain fundamentally as a database, but also fundamentally like as a network, kind of all in one. Um, it, because, you know, it's something that you can connect to, store information on, it's responsible for uh, maintaining a ledger, and that ledger can be used for lots of different use cases. Um, but the ledger here that we're talking about has a pretty clear application to financial transactions because that's essentially um, what, you know, accounting really is all about is a ledger system. You know, you're, you have an account on the blockchain and your current balance is made up of the history of all your transactions within that account. You know, if you funded it for the first time, then your balance is just the sum of that single positive uh, transaction, that credit to your account. And everything else, you know, tied to your account is just the sum of taking money out or putting money in. And that's the history of the financial transactions that we're talking about. And we can maybe use that model to understand how the blockchain uh, facilitates all this and makes this possible. What do you guys say? Does that work? Yeah, I, I think that something about the uh, the the blockchain technology that um, to me is the most fascinating point of it is that if you think about the financial transactions that we have today, it's like I said, it's basically a trust system where one party is it's like a, a third party or something like that. <clears throat> intermediates our transactions and they keep a ledger you know a, a central database stating okay this was transaction number one transaction number two um, bruno has a hundred dollars that he's going to send uh, to gregory and that's transaction number three and all of those uh, records are kept in the bank ledger for example uh, with the blockchain you know with a blockchain what you have is like you said, Gregory, it's more of a network of everyone has a copy of that ledger and there is no regulatory um, position. There is no party that says, okay, this is the truth. And if you don't think this is the truth, well, deal with it. You know, the truth becomes available from everyone's perspective. So like Roman said, with the 51% attack, that's the, um, you know, that's when you sort of convince 51% of the network that a, a specific ledger with a broken record, for example, or like a double spending record, that that is the truth. And then if you can achieve that, then yes, you can achieve a double spend record. But if you think about open uh, blockchains such as Bitcoin or Ethereum or whatever, the computational power 
for you to be able to do that is so big that you wouldn't be able to, you know, it would be too expensive in in comparison to what you would you could get back from that. So to me, the blockchain, the magic of blockchain is, you know, figuring out like having that network where the word of every single member of the network is, you know, part of what the truth actually is. And in the the financial situation that we have, the use case that we have, um, that is really, you know, what makes the transactions work. And, you know, we can say, okay, this transaction was made. And then if Gregory says that that transaction was also made, you know, <clears throat> between the three of us, if we, the three of us are a, a network, I say that a transaction one is valid and Gregory says that transaction one is valid, then we're majority uh, in the network. So then that transaction gets validated, you know, and that's the consensus of that's achieving consensus in the network. And there's a lot of algorithms to achieve that consensus. You know, it's different for private and public blockchains and whatever, but um the main thing is achieving that consensus and keeping track of the ledger between the entire network and not just a single member deciding if transactions are valid or not. Yeah, totally. And, you know, before we get too far into the technical details of some of these things, kind of want to draw us back into maybe some fundamental questions people might have, right? Which is, you know, how is it, and you're already answering some of these questions, but I want to kind of clarify it, like, which is why is it safe to put financial transactions like out there in the public? Like how does, how does it actually secure um, to do that with a blockchain and how is this a, a good alternative? Um, and also, you know, these use cases that, that allow this, like uh, you talk about public blockchains, like that, that's something that's different from private blockchains. There's a lot of vocabulary words kind of inside of here that we need to unpack a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Maybe Roman, you want to kind of weigh in on why it's okay to put financial transactions in the public and for lots of people to hold the record of these transactions and how that works and how that works as an alternative to these centralized systems. To me, the benefit of using the blockchain transactions is that I know no one can censor my accounts and no one can put any sort of re- like geofencing or let's say I, I used to have like, like Visa credit card and that was issued uh, to me as a Russian citizen. And when I came to the United States, I, I wasn't able to use it because they say, yeah, we, we just don't want you to use it yet there. <laughs> so for the blockchain, there is right. like it doesn't. There is no. There are no requirements like how old are you or uh, what's what's your like state like where you located at or it just it's just usable like any any like if you're even if you're like five year old you can have your own account and start making payments and running your own business or anything like that. To me, it's really really fascinating and. Um, if you're asking me like if there is any privacy issue, yes, definitely. Right now with the open public networks, it's a little bit hard to run a business because every every transaction is public and competitors are looking at your transactions. For example, I run a D app that that is called multi-sender that app. And uh, what I see, what my competitors do, they look at uh, all of my transactions of my customers, and they go to their customers and say, "Okay, don't use the don't use the Romans tool. Use my tool. It's better." So that's a little bit of issue of running a business on a public blockchains. And I think uh, when the combination of private transactions will be merged with a public blockchains, that would be like detonating power like <laughs> uh, yeah totally emergence of like the booming business for the old blockchains uh as a personal transaction like like not just a business i feel totally safe like if somebody looks where i send the money because technically they can see the account as who received the money but they don't know who that person is 
unless they will run some sort of analytical data and there are already companies that can analyze the data and can identify an account using some sort of public information from ICOs or uh, um, crypto, crypto exchanges to, to match uh, your identity with your um, accounts and blockchain. Yeah, because that's something on the, the, the public, public blockchains as well, or even every blockchain is that you need to have a, a wallet, right? Which is your address or your uh, ID, if you think about a, um, a conventional database. And um, like you said, it, you, the wallet itself, it doesn't carry any information about, you know, who you are and who's the owner of the wallet. It's just, you know, a bunch of numbers that say, okay, it's sort of like your IP address. It's your identification. And um, when you transact something, you're sending, you know, those valuables, you know, coins or whatever between those wallets. And you don't know if, okay, Roman is sending something to Bruno. It's actually like Roman's wallet ID number one, two, three is sending, you know, something to Bruno's wallet ID three, three, two, four. And uh, the way that I, that they can, you know, track you is with those um, uh, currency exchanges or crypto exchanges, you know, those agencies that you can go to, to buy uh, cryptocurrencies. And that's when, you know, um, hackers and whatever they can, you know, identify who's the owner of what wallet. Is that correct? Uh, yes, that's correct. I think it's mostly used for, you know, uh, government agencies uh, for, you know, getting the data of bad people and with a single request, I'm pretty sure they have pretty much figured it out to identify the accounts and find the people behind the account, behind the uh, blockchain accounts. Mm -hmm. Awesome. It, it, it's sort of a, a little bit like it reminds me of, um, you know, when there was that Silk Road uh, thing investigation going on where people said, OK, the, um, the dark web or whatever, it's completely anonymous. And then, you know, people found who the uh, the the owners of their addresses were. And, you know, it's it's never 100 percent anonymous. You know, there are ways of identifying, you know, who is um, who is the owner of certain wallet or something like that. Um, but in the concept, you know, if we apply the concept of blockchain 100 percent, um, it's just transactions between wallets, you know, between addresses. And doesn't that make it a little bit dangerous? You know, say I have a wallet, for example, I have OK, I have my ID and my password for my wallet. But doesn't that make it kind of easy for me to lose that wallet or from, for someone to grab that wallet from me? What do you guys say about that? With a great power becomes greater responsibility. <laughs> yeah, you, you are the owner of your money and in a blockchain world, you should forget about something like, I forgot my password or I forgot my ID, who should I email? Mm -hmm. you, not email anyone you yeah we we have this big big problem right now in blockchain world that people are really really used to those old traditional financial systems and they lose money they lose accounts they lose private keys their seed phrase and they are trying to contact someone like hey who can help me with that like i need to get access to my account well, you can't. <laughs> you have to admit yourself that this is the new world. These are, these are the new rules. And if you want to really be, um, if you really want to hold your money, not to delegate your money to some agency, mm. uh, you should be able to learn how to protect yourself and learn some measures about security. But I understand it's it's really, really hard for non-technical people. So I think right now there are companies and solutions that are working really, really hard on it to simplify the process and provide some unique solutions like 
vaultvault.com. They're they're working on some really cool um, algorithm to secure the accounts using like a social social security. I mean, not the social security in concept of the United States social security. Social security meaning I can delegate my um, I can split my private key into like a multiple parts and send these parts to my friends and family. So if I'm being hacked, I can retrieve my secure data uh, using those small pieces. At the same time, they cannot collect all the pieces by themselves if they um, want to like, you know, steal my money. Essentially, that's some of the cryptographic algorithms out there that exist right now and people are building uh, user interfaces to allow the new experiences to enable greater security of their accounts. Yeah, because like you said, in terms of user experience, you know, in order to get a, uh, you know, invested in cryptocurrencies and, you know, really dig into blockchain, um, it can be a little overwhelming for your average person, you know, not, you know, non-technical people. Um, because if you, like, if you're going into blockchain and you're going through an agency or something like that, it doesn't make it that much more different for, you know, someone that doesn't know that it is actually blockchain, you know, um, the main thing is when something happens, you don't really have anyone to go to, you know, and that could be really scary for some people. And um, uh, I think the the main reason why, um, you know, uh, me personally, I didn't get invested into cryptocurrencies right now is that, you know, that whole the security is on my end, you know, not not necessarily that, but, you know, I have to hold my wallet. I have to protect my password. And I know there's a lot of uh, gadgets that you can buy or, you know, a lot of things that you can do to protect your wallet and everything. But even to me that I am a technical person, it sounds a bit overwhelming to, you know, actually have to take such good care of my money. And um, like you said, there's a few uh, parties trying to, um, you know, make that a little bit easier for everyone. But um, in like in a long-term basis, do you guys think that there will be a, a solution for that? Do you think we're evolving towards that or something? Totally, yes. I'm totally bullish on, uh, on, the, on the better ways to achieve how to store your seed phrases and private keys. And, uh, and I think like just as a little conclusion like to this topic, I think when you think about blockchain and like uh, keys and like some, something like sensitive uh, security information, you should think it as a, your cash money. If you have your cash money in your pocket, you have it. If you lose it, that's, it's gone. Mm, that, that's a great analogy, yeah. Right. And if you lose your cash, <laughs> you can ask someone, hey, where is my cash? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not like you can just, you know, in a park or something, you see cash lying on the floor and you say, okay, who's, who's this $50 bill or something like that? And right. everyone's going to come running to it, of course. Yeah, everybody will grab it and take it. That's it. Yeah. yeah, I think that's a great analogy, Roman. So, um, yeah, kind of maybe building off that and you know, trying to answer this question, maybe from a technical perspective of, of how the blockchain works. You know, we, we talked about your, your account is something that you have ownership over um, and the network um, is sort of responsible for, uh, you know, holding all the transactions and, 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 you know, telling us what your account balance is, how much cash you have to your point, Roman. Um, you know, tell me a little bit about, or we'll just talk a little bit about, you know, uh, cryptography in this, maybe getting a little more technical. You know, the, the term is that we came up with initially is cryptocurrency, right? And, and cryptography has got several different um, roles in this mechanism of creating a currency. So maybe let's talk about the, how the transactions are actually secure, like why it's safe for this to be on a public ledger where everybody's got to copy the data. Like we talked about that 51% attack earlier. Maybe we'll get there um, and talk about what that is in detail, but why is it safe? Why is it highly unlikely that these 
this transaction history is going to change. Mm-hmm. I think that the main point for that is the uh, the consensus algorithms. Um, but to explain it uh, uh, in a, a deeper way, you have to think about the blockchain itself. Like, what is it? Um, it's basically a, a an entire ledger, you know, a book of records that is going to um, like tell you, okay, you have one block is say, I don't know, five transactions or 10 transactions are stored in a block and every single block is connected to each other. And those blocks, they're generated, like say every five transactions, you generate a new block, right? Yeah. So whenever I explain this to people, you know, I try to clarify you know, the blockchain fundamentally is comprised of transactions or or records like in a database. And these Mm -hmm. transactions or records are grouped together into bundles of records called blocks, which are chained together to make up the blockchain. Yeah, exactly. And the way that all of that works is always in a cryptographic manner, you know, so every transaction, they have a cryptographic signature on it, you know, and it, it can vary depending on what algorithm you use or what's the implementation of your blockchain. But um, uh, on Bitcoin, I think they use SHA-256 or SHA-256, you know, the algorithm to create hashes, um, you know, fixed length hashes. And every transaction created, creates those hashes and those hashes in in uh, their each transaction and then in turn they create those blocks or they're grouped together and each block can be can be represented by a hash as well Um, and the way they're linked together is um, sort of like they call it a Merkle tree so if you think that block one and block two they're connected together they create a single hash you know so block one is a hash block two is another hash and the translation of block one plus block two equals another hash you know and all of the hashes they're fixed in length and they can they can be translated into data so the way they're connected to each other is creating that other data and you create a Merkle tree by having every single block, you know, coming down, every single block coming down to a single hash. You can translate the entire ledger in one single hash. And if you change anything on the data, even if you add a comma or if you change a character or whatever, the hash changes completely. So that's how you know that, you know, okay, I have hash one, two, three, and I know it's a valid hash, but then something changed on the, um, on the blockchain or on the ledger, something changed on the data, and that created a new hash completely different from that. You know? Yeah, yeah, totally. And, and you know, we don't necessarily have time to get into every detail about how everything on the blockchain works clearly. Uh, uh-huh. But if, I, I highly recommend people go check out more resources on like how a Merkle tree works. If you're not familiar with it already, it's very similar to like how Git works. Um, if you ever use source control with Git, uh, like the Merkle root, and you're talking about, you know, the, the, any changes in, in the hash being evidence that you don't have the same copy of the ledger or the same copy of the blockchain. Um, also, you know, other analogies, like if, if you want more resources on, um, you know, even just how cryptography in general works, you know, there's, there's lots of ways we use cryptography in the blockchain right now. We're talking about, um, you know, transactions themselves, you know, the different, um, hashing functions that we talk about, you know, that are used in different ways in the blockchain. Um, you know, basically it's just a way to, uh, encrypt data or hide information. Um, and that just basically means you can take a lot of different input and it's always going to have the same, uh, output. It's like a password in a database. Like, so, you know, that's how most of your modern databases work. When you store your password, it stores a hash of your password, right? And we're always comparing hashes. We're not comparing the password itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, you know, really, that's something, that's another analogy that we can use to understand this and try to give you all some more resources to go check out, to understand some of the fundamentals of how, um, you know, the cryptographic mechanisms on the blockchain work. 
Right. And uh, just a quick point that what you described, the password of the database and the hashes, that called like symmetric cryptography, what it means. Right, right. Uh, the input, uh, the hash of the input should be the same. So if you want to access some information, both parties should have the same secret. And uh, what blockchain uses like for signing transactions is called asymmetric cryptography. What that means that I have my private key and with the, the private key, I have the public key. So, right. And I can share easily my public key and it will not give anyone access to my account because only my private key can unlock uh, and spend the balance of my public key. So how does that work is that with a private key, it's like sort of your bank account check. If you didn't sign it, it's not gonna work. If you wrote some information on your check, you made your, you put your signature in it with your private key, that's your signature. And that signature can be used to propagate to blockchain network and the network will validate. It's a valid signature because, because of the um, elliptic, uh, elliptic, elliptic curve. Yeah, elliptic curve digital signature algorithm. It can be verified that this signature was originated from that public key without exposing your private key. Right. So anyone can verify this signature and then they can basically uh, process that transaction. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Um, and, you know, kind of going back to the thing we talked about, the database, the passwords in the database, I mostly brought that example as just sort of like a uh, something that people might think about uh, that they might have encountered before, right, if they're a developer. And mostly just kind of relating that to, oh, here's a use case where you've probably used a hashing function in the past. Um, we use different hashing functions um, in different places on different blockchains. Um, yeah, Roman brought up a great point about the, the asymmetric cryptography or we also call it public key cryptography. Um, it's where we, you know, get this idea of a public key and a private key and your private key is kind of like your password on the blockchain and your public keys kind of like your username. It's not perfect analogy. Um, but I've seen people get a lot out of that analogy. Um, and yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's a great analogy. Cool. So I think that gives, you know, we talked a little bit about the you know, crypto side of cryptocurrency. So if, if all these blocks are, um, you know, chained together by a block hash, right? Like we talked about all these transactions are bundles of records, or sorry, the transactions are records and they're bundled together in blocks, which are chained together. Um, let's talk a little bit about, you know, why it's so hard to change the history of the blockchain. And I'll kind of kick us off with this. Like part of what makes this really hard is that, you know, you, when you, when you build a blockchain, you basically start from, you gotta start from somewhere. You start this idea of the Genesis block and then you start adding transactions to that. And then, you know, they get contained into uh, these blocks, which get chained together. And anytime you make a new block, basically what it is, is, um, and you know, correct me if I'm subtly wrong here, uh, but basically what happens is um, you get a cryptographic representation of that block that is included in the next block. And then when you start adding blocks on that, because, because each block that you added is, is going to have a, um, each block that you add is going to have a cryptographic representation of the previous block and every block before that in the blockchain. And that is basically why it's going to be so hard to change the history of the blockchain, because if you want to make a new valid block, it has to have um, the encrypted version of the previous block, which also has the block before that all the way back to the Genesis block. Is that pretty, is that a pretty good summary of the uh, problem of, of changing history? Yeah, yeah, pretty, pretty much. Um, the, the thing that you have to consider too, is that, you know, you don't do one transaction every 10 seconds or whatever. There's always 
going to be more transactions and more transactions added to the the chain itself and when you want to you know um create or alter a transaction that was already made before you not only have to change that single transaction you also have to change every other transaction after it before another transaction gets inputted into the chain so it's really hard to change the previous history of the the blockchain because of that because you have such a short window of time to do a lot of processing work you know to create all of those hashes which do take some processing power they're not like simple uh, algorithms they do take processing power to create those hashes and you not only have to do that once but you have to do that all of the times that you want to uh, you know, for every single transaction from that point to now, before another transaction gets added, you know. Yeah, I agree on that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. So where does that put us with our 51% attack problem? Maybe how can that bring us back to this thing that we've uh, mentioned in the past? And now that people might have have a little more understanding of how blockchains work, um, how we use cryptography on blockchain. So how does it make a, a 51% attack hard? So in order to have a 50, so it, it well, is a 51% attack, first of all. Okay. So there are actually great already executed attacks, uh, successful attacks with a 51% for some chains that are not very secure in terms of public trust. Why is that? Because there is not a lot of uh, mining capacity that uh, people target to, let's say, I think Ethereum, Quasic, and some sort of Bitcoin forks, they've been already hacked and uh, executed a double spend attack because miners, they don't, there is not enough miners to mine this cryptocurrency, so that's why the difficulty to create a new block much lower comparing to some more popular blockchains like Bitcoin and Ethereum. So if you want to execute a 51% on Bitcoin, you would have to have the hashing. So there is a there is a term called like. A, uh, hashing difficulty right now. Uh, it's it means how many hashes per second you have to generate in order to be a com competitive uh, miner. Right. So what that means? What's what's the hashing per second? That means you. So your computer it can like execute like I just think about some function like uh, you you give some like random input. And it produces some uh, the hashed hashed outputs. Uh, what that means if that hash is valid. Uh, so what 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 does it mean like valid hash to mine the block? It means there has to be some leading zeros in the beginning of this hash, and if there are enough like zeros. Uh, that means this hash could be valid and uh, it could be accepted as a new block. Why is it so hard? The more zeros you have in the beginning, the harder it will be to find this random input that will produce this hash. So uh, that's why like some blockchains, you know, they, they don't have too much uh, hashing power. So you can spin up your you quick, you can quickly spin up some infrastructure to get to that level of hashing power and to get to 51% of this hashing power. So you, you can look, uh, it's all public information, so you can see who, is the, who are the miners for some particular blockchain and you can uh, evaluate um, what's the current uh, hashing power you have to have in order to execute it. So that means you can out-hash the current miners so you can create blocks much faster than they are. That means you will gain the authority to create blocks. That means you will be able to create your own database. 
You're basically saying that the computing power that you need to have, it needs to be greater than the, the computing power of the entire network, right? Yes. Or, or at least 50, 51% of the network. Yeah, at least 51% because you can, you can mine block faster than they are and so you can produce the history. So they will not be able to pre present their block. Even if they do, you have your own 51%, you, you can reject their block saying, no, we are the consensus right now. We are the miners who will agree on a new block and we don't agree on any block that is not produced by me. Yeah, yeah. So, so the the thing about mining is that you're constantly creating hashes or finding new valid hashes, right? And you said that in the you know if they have zeros on the the beginning, the more zeros they have, the more difficult it is to to find. Um, but like I said before, all those hashes they are of fixed length, right? Um, so doesn't that mean that you have a fixed number of, ha of possible hashes that you can create over time? You know, um, I've seen people saying, uh, that blockchain is going to get like that, um, Bitcoin is going to have a Bitcoin 2.0. It's going to have a fork of Bitcoin itself, or should it not have a fork? You know, does that ha have something to do with the limited amount of hashes that you can create? Um, I don't know the answer to this question, to be honest. So uh, what what I've seen miners do is called like selfish mining. So they can they can they can already pre-mine some of the blocks because they know they already found the blocks, but they just didn't propagate this to the network. Mm. And when they essentially do that they don't include any transactions into those blocks because they, they've been pre-mined ahead of time. Uh, that's a little bit um, disadvantage of proof-of-work consensus and what are the possible things that can happen in proof-of-work. And, and of course, I want to jump into like proof-of-stake algorithm and why it's much more efficient and it's much faster and why there are so many people are trying to build a scalable solutions for existing blockchains because we already know the proof of the work is not scalable in terms of transaction throughput and how much and it also becomes sort of centralized as well because it requires for every node to store the whole history of blockchain, which also proves us that it's not scalable. We, like Bitcoin and Ethereum networks, they became already so large, so that like a simple laptop cannot just run the full node. It's, it's just really expensive and it takes a lot of storage and time just to synchronize the blockchain. So that's why there are uh, multiple versions of how we can scale blockchains. For example, proof of stake is just to get rid of the uh, extensive computation power and sharding blockchain. That means so you, you don't have to store the full history of the blockchain so you can just store some piece of this blockchain and it's still and the block the, the network can still exist with all of those connected shards. Yeah. Yeah. So you know we talked a little bit about um, you know, proof of work, proof of stake. Just really quickly while we're here, maybe want to clarify, you know, what these are. You know, we talk about consensus algorithms or consensus mechanisms. Um, you know, proof of work and proof of stake are examples of these. Maybe really quickly, you know, we just call out kind of some of the popular blockchains, not necessarily everything, but kind of give examples of who's using proof of work, who's using proof of stake, who's trying to use proof of stake, and maybe fundamentally like what these things do. So yeah, for sure. Um, I know that um, I I know a little bit about 
proof of work. Um, I think that Roman will be able to explain more about proof of stake. Um, <clears throat> but proof of work, um, it essentially started with Bitcoin. You know, Bitcoin is the largest um, blockchain that I know that is using the proof of work algorithm. And you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, but basically how it works is that in order to have a, you know, to input, <clears throat> sorry, um, in order to input a valid transaction on the, the, the network itself, you need to provide the uh, computational power required for you to, you know, provide a new hash. So what we were talking about mining is that the mining itself is, you know, choosing and creating those random uh, numbers and combinations of letters and numbers or characters to create a new hash that is a valid hash. So once you create a new, once you find a valid hash that hasn't already been stored on the blockchain itself, you know, we do that with the zeros in, in, in advance to see which ones are new hashes or not. So once you find that new hash, you can input a transaction, or I don't know if it's a single transaction or multiple transactions, but you can basically say, okay, now, now that I found this new valid hash, I can say that this transaction is valid or not. Yeah, exactly. And, and that, that's that, what I understand of proof of work. Yeah, and, and just clarifying like where the name comes from, like producing that valid result is the proof of your work as a miner. Mm -hmm. Exactly. It's, it's proving that you have the computational power, that you worked to get to that hash, that valid hash. So that you get a reward in cryptocurrency. Yeah, exactly. And in the case of Bitcoin, that reward is the coin itself you know and there's also there's a lot of like um a lot of things that happen to get to that um, reward and then after that reward happens you know there's a lot of pooling you know um where people say like you say 50 100 500 people are working together as a single miner so that when the reward comes you know they split the reward in in between themselves, you know, and things like that. Yeah, it's like a mining pool. Yeah, yeah. yeah and besides just the reward, they also get to collect the transaction fees. That's why for users, it's a little bit uh, crazy that at some periods of times, the transaction fee could be really high. And sometimes it's just, yeah, it's, it's not that high. It depends how, how many transactions pending transactions in a memory pool exist right now and what's the market current rate that people are willing to pay to the miners to include their transactions and then in blockchains like bitcoin and ethereum right now the higher you specify the fee you're willing to pay the more incentivized the miner will be to take your transaction into the next block yeah it's a simple supply and demand problem yeah, right. yeah, exactly. All right. Which when you're thinking about blockchains, um, you're going to quickly start thinking about things in economic terms. It's, um, you know, especially when you're dealing with blockchains that, you know, use a currency like this. Um, and a lot of these use cases, you know, deal with financial transactions. Um, you know, probably, I, I bet at some point we'll get into an episode where we talk about crypto economics a little bit. Um, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. Um, so, yeah, I think, Roman, you want to tell us a little bit about um, kind of Ethereum's consensus mechanism right now and maybe what it's looking to, uh, to do in the future? Sure. I think right now the, the most popular ones are delegated proof of stake. It basically means um, anyone can become a node with a minimum like staking power what what this staking power means is okay yeah there, there are there is like a self delegate delegation and ah, all right let me get it started over uh so you can run a node and 
proposed to the network that I would like to be a validator. There, for some different delegated proof of stake algorithms, there could be a different minimum barrier to enter the network. So, for example, like in EOS, I believe in order to become a validator right now, you have to have like 10 millions of dollars to just be a validator. Wow. Which is really high barrier to get in. Uh, but I think when they just started, the barrier were much, much lower. Mm-hmm. So, anyway. Bye, bye. Just- Mm-hmm. Sorry, um, but by validator, you mean someone that, you know, says, oh, this transaction is valid or this transaction is not valid? Yeah, no. so in this, in, well, well, in this case, we don't have miners anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, validator is a miner. Yeah. Oh, okay, right. Yeah, validator produces the blocks. So um, let's say I would like to propose to be a validator. And then in order to increase my voting power, uh, I can have, like, if you just have your, like, EOS currency, you can, you can delegate uh, that currency to, to the validator. So what that means, you, you, you increase the voting power of that validator, and the more voting power you have for some algorithms, uh, the, the much more likely you will create a new block. So, so basically how it works is some sort of election, you know, you're saying that, you know, you need to have a specific voting power so that, you know, right. um, other parties in the, in the, the network, they vote for someone to be a validator and that validator gets to say which transactions are valid or not. Is that it? It's not just, it gets to, it. It, it gives them the power to create blocks and include those transactions into the block. Oh, right. Okay. Okay. So they get to uh, uh, create the transactions and propagate them to, to the network. They include the transactions and propagate to the network. Yes. Okay. Okay. User transactions. So that's why it's called proof of stake. Like how much stake has been delegated to a validator to make it a trustworthy validator. So if there is a lot enough stake to in a validator node, that means this validator is more likely to not to cheat to the network because he has a too much too much stake. Mm-hmm. <laughs> to right. So and there are like Vitalik is trying to come up with a proof of stake algorithm. It's not like I'm I want to make a huge difference between delegated proof of stake and proof of stake. With a proof of stake, that means anyone can become a validator. You don't have to, I don't think there is any like delegation process exists. So the, the way it works, you can only be a validator with your own stake. If again, if I am not mistaken, <laughs> because this is still kind of, new thing to me and um, I'm still trying to learn uh, this stuff. So I might be wrong. Uh, Aren't we all all learning a lot of things when we're building with blockchains? Yeah, totally. And also just for clarification, um, Roman, so just to dispel any potential confusion, you know, what are we using right now on Ethereum? Right now it's proof of work. Right. Yeah. Yeah, very cool. All right. So, um, yeah, guys. So really quickly, um, we're kind of getting to the end of our episode today. Uh, we talked mostly about public blockchains and cryptocurrency and how that works. And I think at some point we'll probably need to spin off into an episode where we talk a little bit more in detail about private blockchains, but maybe Bruno, you want to give us a kind of quick, um, contrast of, uh, you know, use case for private blockchains and how they might fundamentally work differently than a public blockchain. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, like you said, um, private blockchains, um, they have a lot of things different, like a lot of things work differently than public blockchains. Um, but 
you also have protected blockchains. Um, they're not necessarily private, but you know, I think that's also something for another episode. How private blockchains work, uh, it depends on your consensus algorithm, but the main reason for them to exist is that fear of you know, having all of your information public. So say for the use case of transactions and, you know, bank transactions, like we talked about, um, it's completely okay to have uh, a public blockchain, maybe even better. But if you think about a business, you know, say a mining company or, you know, um, whatever kind of business, um, having all of your information to the general public, you know, to general network, even your rival. Um, isn't something, um, you know, interesting. It's not something you want to have. So the private blockchains, they work by having uh, permissions into them. You know, so it's not a blockchain that you can, that anyone can access. It's a blockchain that, you know, members of that company, for example, can access. A big example of that is what IBM is doing with uh, Food Trust. Uh, they they have a um, a private blockchain to where the main purpose of it is not necessarily to validate transactions, but to tell you where some food is coming from. You know, say you go to a market and you see a packet of carrots, for example. Um, with food trust, you can see the whole history that the that specific carrot uh, took. You know, you can see in the the, um, the packaging itself, there would be a label saying, okay, this was planted in this farm, then this um, uh, truck uh, got it from that farm and transported it to this market, which then sold it to the place that you are right now, and you're going to be the one to purchase it. Um, so you can see all that uh, history of what an asset has um, done. And it works a, a lot like the um, the uh, uh, public blockchains on the cryptocurrency example that we were saying. Um, but you don't necessarily have to have a coin to operate and transact. You can basically have anything of value, you know, say anything like from a USB dongle to houses or voting on an, your vote on an election, for example, or like we said on the previous episode, you know, your medical records, they could also be something of value that you want to transact. Um, so in the private blockchain, not everyone can access that blockchain. You need to ask permission. And it works a lot in the way of the hashing and the private and public uh, keys. You know, you also have that on the private um, blockchain, but it works to validate, you know, okay, um, you know, you have different groups of validators, right? You don't just have the the ones, the groups of uh, users or nodes or whatever you want to call them that are going to input the transactions, but you also have the users or members that are going to validate each other's users. You know, you have a little bit more of segmentation into that. It's sort of like you have blockchains inside of blockchains, you know, uh, at least that's how it works on Hyperledger and, you know, th those bigger uh, private blockchains that I've been working with. Um, so you basically have, you know, the proof of stake algorithm or what they call the PBFT algorithm, you know, uh, practical Byzantine fault tolerant um, algorithm to decide, okay, which ones, which one of these members are going to be the orderer members that are going to order in which order the transactions are going to be made. And then we have the members that are going to decide which orderers are valid or are not valid. And then, you know, you have all those um, segmentations, not just for the transactions, but for the members themselves. So that, you know, you can control which member, you know, what members can go through the, the network itself. 
And I think we can like say that, like go more, go deeper into that in a, a, a future episode on private blockchains and how they work and, you know, all of the concepts that they, um, that they have, but, you know, they differ from public blockchains in that aspect of not anyone can access them. You need to have permission from other members of the network to tell you, okay, you're free to to do these tasks. You know, it's sort of like a, a user management system where you have the administrator, you have the common user, you have the permissions system in the block in the private blockchain as well. Yeah, totally. That makes perfect sense. Thanks for that explanation. And yeah, I think it you know, awesome. definitely will make more sense to go in depth on some of these topics in a, another episode. Well, everybody, I think we're kind of getting to the end of our time for today. Um, I really enjoyed this chat. I think we've kind of gone in depth on a lot of you know, topics about how the blockchain works. Um, thank you guys for those explanations. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Um, it was really amazing, you know, talking about the, the blockchains and yeah, yeah, it's, it's really great to have you guys here. Yeah, totally. Well, I'm going to go ahead and wrap us up here. Um, everybody, thanks again for listening. This has been our second episode of Adventures in Blockchain. Um, we've talked about how blockchain works. So stick around for the next episode and we'll catch you then. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.